And so, my friends, we have come to the end of our series of biblical theology of eating and drinking. And I, of course, hope that it has been uh, helpful for you. I hope that it has been uh, thought-provoking for you and stimulating for you as we have worked our way through it. If you're joining us, some of you visiting for the first time, sorry, your last sermon in a series of 10. So you have to catch up with all of them in a, in a very short uh, period and space of time here. Uh, but this is a theme, eating and drinking, which of course begins on the very first pages of your Bible and continues through to the end to the very last pages that are there. It's a theme that takes us then from creation all the way up to glory. And it's a theme through which, and I hope we have seen this along the way, through which we can once again see the splendor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might be one in which we think, first of all, well, where's the gospel in drinking and eating? And yet, nevertheless, I hope we have seen how much it is pictured in what we have talked about throughout Scripture. So this has been our journey thus far to the point where we are today. In the first place, we looked at the gift given, that God created this world and filled it with delicious food and gave it to his people out of the largesse of his goodness and the kindness that is his. In the next sermon, we looked at the gift abused. So we did not receive it as he gave it to us. He said, I've given you all of this, just don't eat of that. And we, of course, ate of that very thing. And not only did our first parents partake of that kind of evil and take it into themselves, but we ourselves in our own way, generation after generation, have also partaken of it as well. So the gift was abused. Then we saw how in scripture, the gift is restored. And it's not only restored in God promising that the creation, though marred by sin, will continue to reproduce, it will continue to produce food as God created it, but the gift is restored more specifically in the covenant meal that God provides for us, that not only will we be provided for and sustained for with what we need physically, but we will be able to once again fellowship with God. And this is seen in the Old Testament in the covenant meals and in the Passover. And then it's seen even more clearly in the New Testament in the Lord's Supper. And then with those three things set up, with kind of the creation, fall, and redemption of, 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 the, of ourselves and around drinking and eating, we then saw and examined what Scripture has to say about this along the way. So the next thing we looked at were the dietary laws. Why were they put in place? The clean and unclean idea that, of course, is found in Deuteronomy, uh, but is also found in Genesis, where at the flood we're talking about clean and unclean animals. We saw how those were fulfilled in Christ, and thus all things declared to be clean. Then we considered hospitality. And we looked at hospitality, we considered the examples that we find in Scripture of hospitality, the example of Abraham going back more or further behind him, the example of Melchizedek in providing hospitality, the calls that exist in the New Testament for hospitality, but we saw that hospitality actually flows from God himself because God is the one who took an inhospitable world, made it hospitable, and invited and created us into this place 
and this table that he had prepared for us. After that, we considered feasting. We looked at the uh, connection between eating and worship and tithes and offerings. Then we looked at fasting once again and saw how sometimes when we refrain from eating that which God has declared good, we are, never, we are saying to God, I hunger and I thirst for you more than I hunger and thirst even for the good gifts that you have given to us in this world. And then a couple of weeks ago, we took some time to consider the difficulties, the complexities that are associated with eating and drinking in this world. And we struggled through that. And last week, we looked together at the relationship between work and food and eating, which is a creationally established pattern and ordinance, and then something we see clearly commanded in the New Testament as well. If someone's not willing to work, neither let him eat. And so today, uh, as I said last week, I trust that you expected where we were uh, heading today. Today we come at last to the consummation, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you have not opened your Bibles there uh, yet, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, or at least to follow along with me in your bulletins as I read verses 6 through 10. Now, the first five verses of this chapter we have already read together. They were the call to worship this morning, and so I'm really picking up the reading after what we've already read. Hear this portion of the Word of God. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Great God in heaven. Thank you for this scene. Lord, overwhelm us as John was overwhelmed with what he saw and what he heard. Spirit of God, take these words, which are in fact living and active, and pierce our hearts with them. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us through these words. Grab hold of us by the scruff of the neck where we need to be and take us where we need to be. Thank you for commanding John to write them down. And thank you that we can read them since he followed the command. We pray in the name of this exalted, risen Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, my friends, as we come to this last sermon, a part of me, would love to conclude this series 
by just a joyful portrait and recounting or even imagining of what the marriage supper of the Lamb might be like. I'd part of me would just love to stand up here and talk about that and imagine with you how wonderful and how beautiful that day would be. To just take the passage that we've got before us and focus only on verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where John gives us, where God gives us here this glimpse, this peak, this image of this glorious celebratory feast. But were I to do that, were I to sit up here or to stand up here and just talk about that, I would, in fact, be guilty of compromising the Word of God, of distorting the message of the Bible, of distorting the message of Revelation, and even the message of the chapter that is before us today. What we have seen as we have worked our way throughout all of the themes that I've already articulated for us, is that food and all that is represented in it and by it is in fact a biblical line of demarcation. That might be surprising to us, but not then when we step back and think about how it's presented in, scriptural, in Scripture. It, there are, with respect to food, deep issues of obedience to the Word of God. Who will you listen to who tells you what to eat, what to take in, and what not to take in? On whom will you depend for your sustenance in this world? With whom are you in covenant is a question that is begged by the whole relationship that we have to food. Who are you partnering with in this world? What about clean and unclean? Are you clean or are you unclean? All of these things are portrayed, they're displayed, and they're played out for us, not exclusively by any means, but most certainly in the realm of eating and drinking. The, the line of demarcation, right, the, the easiest place for us to see it, of course, is where we have seen it, where we would expect to see it. The line of demarcation is clear in the garden. I've created this garden. Of all of these trees in this garden, you may eat except for this one tree. And from this one tree, you may not eat. There's a line of demarcation that is there. The line of demarcation exists in the wilderness as well, where God says, I'm testing you by hunger and by giving you manna. I am testing you to see where you fall, to see what is in your heart. The line of demarcation is evident in the book of Exodus. It's evident in the Passover. Who can partake of the Passover of the Lord, both in its original giving, in the context of Egypt, and then in its celebration? Only Israel. Nobody else can partake of the Passover unless they become part of Israel. There's a line of demarcation. Only Israel eats this meal. You can see it in the words of our Lord when he spoke in John chapter 6. He says, you have to, and we recognize that he's, he's working through an illustration here, but with all the poignancy that he can, he's saying, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And if you don't, 
If you don't do that, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus doesn't leave the line fuzzy. He doesn't just kind of say, well, you know, just be a good person and do the best you can, eat what you want, and, uh, and we'll all try and get along together. Jesus says, no, there's a line of demarcation, and the line is, are you eating me or are you not? And if you don't, you have no life in you. The line of demarcation is evident in the Lord sending out the disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom of God when he says to them, go into these houses, and if they receive you, if they welcome you in, eat whatever is set before you. But if they don't receive you, if they don't extend hospitality to you, then move on. Go to the next place. That's a line of demarcation. There's nothing fuzzy about it. You either receive it, and you receive them, and you give food, and you eat food together, or the disciples, the apostles move on to the next place. And the demarcation, the delineation, are seen for us as a church every time we have the Lord's Supper. Every time we have it. When we have the Lord's Supper, I, as pastor in this church, do what is called fence the table. I fence the table. I set up a line of demarcation. And I say that this table that has been prepared for us is prepared for those who are baptized, those who are believers and professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are repentant of their sins, and those who are members in good standing of an evangelical church. Those who are not should not partake of that meal when it is offered, or they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. That's not surprising. It's exactly the line that trace, you can trace it. I just did it. I just did it for you. I just traced it right back to the Garden of Eden. It's to say there's a line of demarcation in terms of who are part of the family and of the household of God. It's our demarcation by the power and the grace of God. In the Bible, I'm thinking now of Romans 1, 2, and 3. In the Bible, it identifies all of us as being in the same boat, in the same boat of sin. I, I don't know if you follow uh, the various Banksy uh, illustrations that come out periodically. Uh, one just came out, or a series of them just came out, uh, a month ago. Banksy is the unknown artist uh, in Britain. And, and one of them is a picture of three children uh, in a boat, and the caption over top of it is, we're all in the same boat. And indeed, there's a sense to which we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same leaking boat of being created in the image of God, and yet having fallen from that image and sinking as a result. But that's where in the same boat ends because the reality is, is by the power and by the grace and by the work of God. Some, not as a result of what they have done, but as a result of what he has done and our belief in what he has done have been rescued, have been delivered away out of a sinking ship has been provided by God. Revelation in this respect is no different than the rest of Scripture. In seeing the coming day of the Lord as a day of separation, a day of dividing between wheat and chaff, between sheep and goats, 
between those who are clothed in Christ and those who are clothed in the finery of this world. The last line of the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, that we sang today, talked about the worldlings fading pleasures. Well, Revelation chapter 18, right before ours, our chapter, verses 16 and 17, listen to him. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. She looks great. She's trying to do the best she can to cover up an ugly heart. Alas for her, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Boom wiped out, a line of demarcation while the saints are clothed in Christ. So this distinction is described in terms of clothes, it's described in terms of deeds, it's described in terms of judgment and salvation or lament and rejoicing, and it is described in terms of feasts in terms of suppers, in terms of eating and drinking. I haven't read it for you yet, but in Revelation chapter 19, there are, in fact, not one, but two feasts that are described here, two suppers that are described. One, of course, is the one that we've heard, the Supper of the Lamb, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but the other is an awful supper. It's an awful supper, and you don't want any part of the other supper. I must read it for you to be faithful to our king, and so that we hear the words that he wants us to hear for the sake of giving them to us as a warning. It is no pleasure for me to just read these words and think on these things, except if they draw us closer to Christ. Here then, the other supper in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. Okay, supper number one, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Supper number two, the great supper of God. Well, what's being served at the great supper? of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, parentheses for a moment, great parentheses. Uh, the section between the two feasts is the rider on the white horse who is faithful and true, our Lord Jesus Christ, with a sword coming out of his mouth with which he will divide the nations. So these kings have gathered for war against that king. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, 
and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The people who are at that supper, they're not guests, they're not the bride, they're the supper. They're the meal. They are the carrion. They're devoured. They are consumed. They are eaten because of their sin, their rebellion against King Jesus and against His Word. They're eaten because of their harlotry, their idolatry. They're eaten because of their cravings which have put them in covenant, commonly we say in league, with the one who stands opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're eaten because of their predilection, their hunger for, and their partaking of violence and immorality. They're eating of it. They're taking it down into their being. It seemed oh so very common, so very natural in this world. It seemed like there were no consequences for doing those things. But at that great supper of God, Jesus himself will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's what the Word says. From verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He reigns in glory. He reigns supreme, and he will not allow his reign to be marred or to be challenged by those who will not. Listen to the good word of the king who is faithful and true. You do not want to be at that supper. You don't want to be there. But all praise and thanks to God that there is another supper. A supper wherein the wrath of God was borne by the Lamb of God so that the Lamb could make sheep out of goats, could could make dearly beloved guests, could make a beautiful bride out of those who were enemies and strangers and those who were originally opposed to his rule. The lamb could make a bride out of a harlot if you will allow me to say it this way. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb turned the table. The Lamb turned the table. If if you want to think of it in Lewis terms, the feast that was on the great supper of God was the feast of sinful men and women, both great and small. And the lamb, in turning the table, said, I'll get on that table. I'll take their place. I'll get on that table. And he drank the wrath of God so that you could drink the wine. 
He drank the cup of the wrath of God so that you could drink the wine. He turned the tables so that instead of being the meal, we might eat the meal with joy to the lamb who was slain, who is the lamb who now reigns. Tables turned. Here's my simple question for today. Are you ready for that great and terrible day? Which supper will you be attending? You'll be attending one of those two suppers. No other suppers are offered. That's it. Those are the two. The scriptures hold out this day, this supper of the Lamb Day, as a promise, as a call, as an invitation. It is held out from beginning to end. Did you hear it in the Isaiah passage that we read earlier? The Isaiah passage, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. It's the promise, the promise of a feast prepared. And one more time, let me work us through the front of your bulletin. The way this is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, I'll just read down the page, Luke 13, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. From all over the world, people will come to this table, to that mountain where that feast has been prepared. People are going to come, and they're going to recline there. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed, happy, the place of joy. That's almost exactly the words that are found in Revelation. Write this down. Blessed are those who will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Almost exact same phraseology. And then Luke 22. Jesus, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All of the passages, all of them, all three of them are associated with the coming kingdom, with the reign and the rule of King Jesus. And they are all held out to say to the people, come, come. Come to this banquet that I have prepared. I've made a way that is possible for you to join with me at this banquet. We've already quoted in the course of this series, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The promise of the king is to say, I will come in. I will recline at table with you. I will eat with you. Revelation chapter 2 says, To the one who conquers, I will give of the hidden manna. I'll give you that manna. And perhaps the clearest thing that is given to us in Scripture from beginning to end is the tree of life. 
that tree with which our first parents would have secured everlasting joy and everlasting blessing as they fulfilled the mandate of God over all of creation, and yet they chose to eat of the other tree. And as a result, God said, you cannot eat of the tree of life right now. You cannot have access to the tree of life right now. You would seal your fate if you ate of the tree of life before I have accomplished the work that I must do to give you access. And then, of course, when we come to the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus has taken up his reign, he's completed his work, and access to the tree of life is granted once again, access in the Son, access to the Son himself. It's 12 kinds of fruit that bears in each month and the words that we have in Scripture. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I'll grant you access. I'll give you that place. I'll give you that life, that tree, that eating, that fellowship. And so, in Revelation chapter 19, our passage, there is a most awful warning, but there is a most tender invitation that is there as well. Some of us struggle with the language of Revelation, with the imagery that is there. If that is you, then hear it in the language of Paul, Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Paul says it this way, Behold the kindness and the severity of God. That's what you're looking at. When you're looking at Revelation chapter 19, you are looking at the kindness and the severity of God. Severity applied to those who oppose him and who oppose his rule. Kindness to you, to those who call upon his name. The invitation goes out. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It is the biblical command, get to the marriage supper of the Lamb. No matter what else you do in this world, get to that supper. Get to that supper through the Lamb. The book of Revelation ends almost in the same breath. In the same breath, it gives the warning and it gives the call. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come and take of the water of life without price. Come, it says, and it holds the warning only to encourage the invitation. Come to the glorious reign of King Jesus. It's a place where we will be united to him in perfection forever, our bridegroom and then describe it as you will. A place of everlasting peace, everlasting joy be upon their heads, a place of everlasting and perfect shalom will reign in that place. 
come ready to shout his praises and to give him the glory. I ask you then this question again. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that supper? Are you prepared to go to that supper? I don't know about you, but there are many times and there are many days when I look at myself and I think there's just no way the Lord could want me at that feast. There's no way he could want me in that place of holiness. I look at my sin, I look at my despair, my despondency, I look at my heart, and I look at my life, and I think to myself, I just don't belong at that table. I, I'm just too filthy to be in that place. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to go to the other one. But it seems to fit better. It seems like I'm better dressed, at least in and of myself. It's then that the simplicity of the gospel needs to be re-eaten, re-consumed by me and maybe by you as well. I'll end this thing with two quotes. First from the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. A line, third, says, Come ye weary, and if I could substitute here weary for hungry and thirsty, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're ready, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call sinners Jesus came to call. I don't know about you, it's my only shot of getting in. It's my only shot of getting a seat at the table. It's to say, that's the Savior I need. I'm never going to get ready on my own. And I'd like to tarry till I could. If I thought that would make the case better, I, I fear it would only make it worse. So I got to hear the good news, the simplicity of the gospel. And then a friend sent me this poem, and I'm going to close with it, or just about close with it. Turn to page eight of your bulletin. Sometimes it is easier for a poem that you've not heard before to be uh, read as well as listened to. I'll describe the scene for you. The scene is of you or me finding ourselves entering into the banquet hall where this marriage supper of the Lamb has been set up and encountering Jesus, who is here, capital L, love in the dialogue that ensues here. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. And love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. 
Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I've marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. The other room, the other supper. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Okay, my dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. They called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. They were wrong. He was the sweetest guest that ever entered into this world. He was the host. He was the one who made the world. He was the one who prepared the very first feast for our first parents. He is the one who has cared for the world so that it continues to produce and reproduce according to its kind so that we still eat of it, be it by the sweat of our brow. He is the one who prepared the table in the wilderness for Israel. He's the one who said, let's make this water into wine at the wedding because that'll give you a little foretaste of who I am and what I do. He's the one who, when the multitudes were on the mountain, leaned over to his disciples and said, how are we going to feed all these people? Where are we going to get, where are we going to go and buy bread for all these people? Knowing full well that he spoke as the bread of life, as the one who said, bread and fish for everybody. I've got that covered. And he's the one who has gone to prepare a place for us, and in that place, as the glorious bridegroom, to prepare a table for us and to pull out the seat for us and say, put yourself down right there. This is my table. This is my banquet. These are my guests, and I've made them perfect. I've made them spotless. And he's the one who is the food. He's the one who is the meal. And so in words that I've quoted a hundred times at least for us as a congregation, brothers and sisters, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, help us. Jesus, help us. Spirit, Help us. We need you to prepare us for these things. Thank you for doing all that is necessary, all of the work accomplished by you. Now, by your grace, let us walk in you. Let us believe that which you have said of us, that in ourselves, nothing but unworthiness. In you, beautiful dress has become ours. Lord, now, as your people, let us feast in anticipation of that which is to come. We pray this in your name. Amen.